In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Christos Anisti, Christ is risen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing eternal life. Where do we hear that? Where do we hear this particular phrase? Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing eternal life. If you've been attending services during the Holy 50 days, you might have heard it in the procession, right? When we're going around, we say, Christo, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. But there's one other place in the liturgy that we say the same thing. Does anybody remember? Yeah, during the fraction, the fraction of the Holy 50 days. We say the same thing. Good. I'm glad you guys are paying attention. Today, we are going to talk about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does anybody have a Bible? If someone could just pull it up, we're going to read just a small piece. The Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 24. Are you pulling that out, John? Yeah, Luke 24, <clears throat> 50 to 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continuing in the temple, blessing God. Very good. And can I get you to read also... Uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Please. Very good, thank you. So I just wanted to read to you the accounts, at least according to St. Luke in his Gospel and in the account of the book of Acts. I want to bring to your attention one thing. It said that he led them as far as Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, where he ascended in all of his glory. What does Bethany mean? Bethany means the house of obedience. How befitting is it that Christ our Savior ascended to the heavens and blessed those who were living a life of obedience. The disciples, weren't they obedient to their master? For the most part we know. The life of obedience, it's very essential. Now I know some of you are saying, well yeah we hear that all the time. We're supposed to be obedient to authority, obedient to abuna, obedient to our parents, obedient to our instructors. Yes, there's something to be said about someone who lives a life of obedience. There's an expression in Arabic, and I may be butchering it. Basant, you can help me. Baraka fil muhawid, something like that. Blessings to those who are obedient. I don't know how you say that in Arabic. That. <laughs> yeah. Fa there's something to be said about those that are 
disciples of the church. I want to give you an example of obedience that maybe we've never thought about. These days, there has been some talk about the fast of the apostles, which is going to start next week, right? Next Monday. And its origins. And how is it that it's a variable fast? So that it's not fixed number of days. It depends on when we celebrate the Feast of the Resurrection. And it always ends when? At the Feast of the Apostles, right? July 12th, or the 5th of Abib. And so there has been some talk and some research into, well, how many days were fasted by the Apostles and when? And so there's a little bit of controversy. And you know the church is looking into that. Of course, the Holy Synod at this point has said, we're going to start fasting the Monday after Pentecost, and we end on the Feast of the Apostles. That's what we have today. What if someday Pope Tawadros and the Synod decide to change that, and they say, from now on, we're going to fast just one week? And then we go back and we think to ourselves, yeah, I knew there was something fishy about the fast of the apostles. I knew that it was only supposed to be for the priest and his wife or the priest and his family. Ever heard that? That's what some people have said. The fast of the apostles is just for the clergy, which is, of course, not true. And so they might think to themselves, yeah, all these years that you've been fasting, those 40-some days, um, you didn't have to because now the church changed it. So you, we were wrong in, to the begin with. Not that we were wrong to begin with. That's what was decided from the beginning. So those people who are living the life of the church and obedient to the church and fasting all of those days, even when it occurred one year, I think it was 49 days that it reached, right? A few years ago. Does that mean that all went to, to naught? Like we fasted in vain? Why are you laughing? It was 49 days at one day, one year. Huh? So does, does all that go to naught? No, of course not. If I was obedient to the church and fasting, don't you think that God's going to bless me for that? Even if for some reason the synod decides to change the fast of the apostles. Of course. Makes sense, right? So it was befitting anyways that he led them as far as Bethany. There are some that have said there are four great miracles that have occurred in Christianity, according to some. The first one was the incarnation. God incarnate. God coming into the world and becoming man. Of course, a virginal birth is, you know, is not something to, to scoff at. So the incarnation. The second one is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third one is the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth one, does anyone, can anyone tell me what the fourth one might be? That's a good guess. But according to, the, to this, whoever this author was, he says it's his second coming what we call the parousia, his awesome second coming. So those are what's been known as the four miracles in Christianity. Now let's dissect the ascension. And this is, of course, the feast that we celebrated a few days ago. When did it take place? We took place 40 days after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it occurred on that Thursday. And that's why every year we celebrate the ascension on Thursday. What happened in those 40 days? Christ our Savior appeared to His disciples on many occasions, some have said about ten times, and to different groups of people, and He taught them things, things that pertain to the Kingdom of God. 
If you read in St. Paul's epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is, by the way, um, the piece that we read during the funeral of men, he says, And that he was seen by Cephas, then the twelve, then five hundred brethren at once. And he goes on. So Christ appeared many times. Of course we know, remember when the two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus, who were those disciples? Cleopas and most likely Luke. Right? Christ appeared. Of course they didn't recognize him right away. But he appeared and he started talking to them. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to James. He appeared to Paul. Many times teaching them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, there are two reasons why he spent some time with his disciples. And by the way, for those of you that don't know, that's why we have the procession of, of the icon of the resurrection around the church every time we celebrate the liturgy within those 40 days. Because it reminds us that Christ appeared to his disciples and was amongst them. And we are reminding ourselves that he is amongst us today as well. Okay, so the first reason is so that the disciples would be convinced beyond a doubt that this is the Savior Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. That's number one. Number two, for the sake of instruction, as we just alluded to. I'll read to you the book of Acts chapter 1. It says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during those 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And keep in mind, of course, this is where we get the sacred tradition or the oral tradition that's not written in the Bible, in the scriptures. Some of those things that were transmitted orally from generation to generation. Like what? Like making the sign of the cross. How do we know to do that? It's not written in the Bible. Like um, the rites of marriage the rites of baptism, the canonical hours, the daily cycle of prayer, the prayers of the dead, all of these things, facing the east when we pray. Where is that written in the Bible that we should face the east? All of these things were received in this oral tradition. So those are the two reasons. Now, how did he ascend? How did he ascend? It's unique in the way our Savior Jesus Christ ascended because it has never happened that any human being ascend the way he did. Now I know you're thinking to yourself, but wait a minute. There were two individuals in the Old Testament who did ascend. Who were they? Elijah and Enoch. Very good. Elijah was taken up to heaven by a chariot of fire. Enoch also was translated by God up, up to heaven. But Christ ascended by his own power not by the power of anybody else, just as he had risen from the dead by his own power. That's why we say he is the firstborn, or the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep, because he is the first one raised from the dead by his own power. So our Lord was lifted up into this other realm. He was taken up by a cloud. And in the Bible, this cloud signifies what? It signifies the presence of God. So he was received in the presence of God. And we, we have examples of this in the Old Testament when the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. You can read that in the book of Exodus. 
or when the cloud enveloped Mount Sinai when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, or in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured on Mount Tabor when he took with him those three disciples, Peter, John, and James, and a bright cloud overshadowed them. The presence of God. The presence of God. So, he ascended in the body. He ascended in the body. Why? How do we know that? I, we, we spoke about this at Vespers Saturday night, last night. We said that his human nature, sorry, his divine nature was united with his human nature. And we say this in the confession. We say without what? Without mingling, without confusion, and without... Oh, you guys are good. Without mingling, without confusion, without alteration or separation, right? So because the divine nature doesn't ascend or descend, it fills all. That's the divine nature. It fills all. It's everywhere present. So he took on the human nature, right? He enveloped himself, or whatever word we can use. He robed himself with humanity, and he ascended in this glorious state um, to the heavens. And in the same like manner, he will descend on that last day of judgment uh, on a cloud as well. In the Gregorian liturgy, we kind of mention that. We say, and at your ascension into the heavens in the body. At your ascension into in the heavens in the body. And so he sits at the right hand of his father. This is what we say in the Nicene Creed. He sits at the right hand of his father. Now, we agree that God is spirit. God doesn't have a right or left. And again, we spoke a little bit about this in Vespers. When we say right and left, these are like human descriptions that we give to God because it's hard for us to describe anything related to God. But he sits at the right hand of his Father. What does that mean? It means it refers to the glory and the honor and the majesty and the power of God. He sits in all equality with God in those, uh, in those qualities. And that's why we say also, when we, when we begin to describe uh, Christ, we say he, for example, is co-essential. What does co-essential mean? He is of the same essence as of God. We say he is co-enthroned, which means what? He is king, as God is king on a throne. We say he is co-eternal, which means what? He was begotten of the Father before all ages. He is eternal as the second person of the Trinity. Co-creator, right? He was involved in the creation of the world. And so he sits at the right hand of his father in all equality of power and majesty. Of course, King David prophesied saying in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we know that St. Stephen saw this. He saw this uh, event, right? He was being stoned to death and he looked up, he saw the heavens were opened, and he said, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Who can sit at the right hand of the king except one who is an equal authority of the king? Another king. You see, we can't say that God is king and his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, is a prince because he's the son of God. Can we say that? That would make Jesus Christ what? 
less than God. And so who sits at the right of the king is another king, someone all worthy of the throne. So Christ is king as God also is king. With the ascension, you know the expression that we have discussed he made himself of no reputation when Christ came into the world. He made himself of no reputation. Now he is in f the fullness of his glory. No longer is he born in a manger, living a poor life, the son of a carpenter, um, not having a place to lay his head, a man of, acquainted with sorrows and grief, none of that. Now he will come back in all of his glory to judge the living and the dead. Why did our Savior Jesus Christ ascend to the heavens? Well, he answered that question himself to his disciples. He said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So essentially what the Lord is saying is that His human form will be replaced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that He's going to convert Himself into the Holy Spirit. No, these are two distinct persons, hypo hypostases. That Christ is going to go and send the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit brings us really much closer into contact with our Lord Jesus Christ than His bodily form did. Can you imagine when our Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth there are so many people that wanted to touch him and hear him and be healed by him. But now we have, he sent us the Holy Spirit, which abides in each one of us in all of his fullness. That's the difference. That the Holy Spirit abides in each one of us in all of the fullness of God. It's the Holy Spirit that we invoke to come down on the altar during the divine liturgy to convert what into what? the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. It's the same Holy Spirit that we invoke when we bless the waters of the baptism before we participate in the sacrament. It is the same Holy Spirit that we invoke at the wedding ceremony when we're uniting two to become one flesh. It is the same Holy Spirit that we bring on that we ask to come and to bless the oil at the sacrament of unction. It is the same Holy Spirit that is breathed into the mouth of the of the priest who was being ordained at the time. So the Holy Spirit now is amongst us and fills all in all. So we see that the Ascension and Pentecost really are related. They're related to each other. He goes away to send his Holy Spirit. So he kind of, he changes the form in which he will work with us. He changes the form by which he will work among us. Now, Christ didn't leave the church by his Ascension. Right? He says, I will not leave you as orphans. You know, because he is our father, so to speak. He doesn't just go away. He doesn't distance himself. In fact, he said to them before he left, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And I really want you to bring this verse to mind whenever you're feeling hopeless. Or whenever you're feeling like life is taking a different turn that you don't want. Whenever you're feeling like there's nobody out there that can support you, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Please remember this verse. So, his ascension didn't mean a departure from, from his church. So, what happened was, 
that the disciples were maturing. They were developing. They no longer had to see the Lord tangibly, but He became a part of them through the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ's ascension allowed them to grow. You know, because if you think about it, He was kind of weaning them off of Him, so to speak. How do we know that? Well, when Christ lived in the world during His ministry in those three years, the disciples relied on Him for everything. It's almost like they hid behind Him. He was doing all the miracles and they were watching. He was teaching and they were dumbfounded by what He had to say. He was refuting the opponents and they were just baffled. Right? Christ was doing everything for them. After the ascension, there was a transformation that was made. The disciples undertook these responsibilities. We have examples of that. Remember when the disciples, um, they were given the power to heal, for example. You remember our Lord Jesus Christ had said that you, uh, greater miracles you would be doing. He said to His disciples, whatever I, you see me doing, greater miracles you'll be doing. And I remember His Grace Bishop Serapion actually used this in, as an example. When Christ healed the man who was lying down next to the pool for 38 years, remember? At the pool of, uh, in Bethesda. We hear in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 3 and 4, about a man who was lying down also. From birth he was born invalid, paralyzed. And Peter and John approached him and they healed him. They said to him, gold and silver, Peter was saying, gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I offer to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand and walk. And the man was healed. And we later learn in chapter 3, I think, or chapter 4, sorry, that he was over 40 years old. And so compare that to the man who was 38 years old, paralyzed, to this man who was 40-something years old, paralyzed and healed. Greater works were done by the disciples after Christ had left them. And we talk about teaching and, 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 and preaching. How about the sermon that St. Peter gave? How many people were attracted to Christianity? Or how many? In that one sermon that he gave after Pentecost. 3,000? 3,000, yeah. That's powerful. So, he left them for that reason too. They were prepared now to go on their own. Again, they weren't operating on their own because the Holy Spirit had filled them on the day of Pentecost. So, the ascension really was a declaration of their growth, their maturity. They're undertaking this responsibility. You can call it a graduation. They had graduated. They're ready to move on. You can use the analogy of uh, a father teaching his son how to swim. After a while, the father can let the boy go, right? He just stays back and watches. Doesn't leave him, he doesn't forsake him, but he lets him go and watches. Or, or, or a boy who's learning how to ride a bike, right? Same thing, the father steps back and lets him ride. So it really is um, a major milestone in the development of, of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay. What lessons do we learn from the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you seven and then we'll wrap up. And so you'll know when we get to number seven, we're coming to a close. There are seven lessons that we learn from the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is, is that it gives us confidence in the midst of tribulation. 
How do we know that? Because at the cross of our Savior, it didn't end there. That wasn't his final destination, right? What happened after the cross? It led to the glory of the resurrection and the ascension. Don't forget that piece. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, some of you may not, that in our tradition, we have what's called the three-day memorial after someone passes away, in which we will go to the home of the deceased and pray a short prayer in which we are kind of um, doing away with the spirit of mourning. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It has nothing to do with the spirit of the soul, uh, the spirit of the deceased. I'm talking about the feeling of mourning is done away with after the third day because instead we are doing what? We are wallowing in the joy of the resurrection. That's why we have it after the third day or at the third day, I should say. And then we also have something called the 40-day memorial. We just had one today, actually. What is the 40-day come, where does the 40-day come from? The ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we are commemorating the resurrection after three days, we are also commemorating the ascension. That's how essential the ascension is. Because he goes to prepare a place for us. That's a joyous occasion. And so when we have these 40-day memorials, it's not just you know, giving condolences, it really should be rejoicing. Rejoicing in the mansions that are prepared for all of us. Okay, so confidence in the midst of these tribulations because it gives us hope, the resurrection and the ascension. And really this was the experience of the saints and the martyrs who suffered for the sake of Christ. So that's number one. Number two, we learn from the ascension that there is hope and that he will come again. So he didn't leave us for good. He's going to come again. And that's why it says in the account today that John read for us that the two men in white apparel, they told the disciples, who were those two men, two men by the way? Angels. Yeah, they were angels. They said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I don't need anything more than that. This same Jesus who went up to heaven is going to come back. This is hope in the second coming. And that's why at every divine liturgy or every service when we recite the Nicene Creed, we say what? We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. We, look, we are looking forward to the resurrection. It's one of the reasons why we face East when we pray. Because that resurrection, that second coming, He's going to come in awe and majesty and glory coming from the East. So, Christ left them in person. And he's going to return in person. He left them in a glorified body. He's going to return in that same glorified body. He left in the sight of men. He's going to return in the sight of all of humanity. Not like the resurrection where nobody saw him rise from the dead. They came to the tomb and they found it empty. The ascension was different. It was in front of their eyes. And so will be the second coming. So we too will have that spiritual, glorified, celestial, luminous, whatever you want to call it, body that Christ had shown us. And he, he gave us a glimpse of that uh, on Mount Tabor at the Transfiguration. Okay, that's number two. Number three, the ascension teaches us patience. Right? The apostles exercised 
patience and waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Do we also exercise the same patience and waiting on God to respond? I dare say a lot of us don't. Because we feel like we, we have the answers and we know what needs to be done now. And it isn't being done for some reason and we get upset. We get disgruntled. And some of us begin to complain about God even. How can He not trust my plan? I have a good plan. So we don't have that, that patience. That, that perfect job that we feel like you know, we've applied for and we are the most qualified. Yet God decides we shouldn't be the one to take it. Or we're still waiting for that ideal spouse. We're still waiting to get married. How long is God going to keep me waiting? Or with a married couple, how long are we going to keep trying to have children? Does God not want me to be a parent? Or in buying the car and finding that perfect home, we just we don't want to wait. Nobody has patience anymore. So the disciples teach us that patience really is a virtue. Do we have confidence that He is with us? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Yeah, God with us. And that He will never leave us. As He said to us, I will go, I'm, I will always be with you. I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Do we have confidence in the resurrection, which is the cornerstone of our faith? Do we have confidence in the ascension, that our own ascension will take place into the heavens where He is going to prepare a place for us? Okay, number four. The Ascension reminds us that we have an advocate in heaven. That we have an advocate in heaven. God, God has, Christ has gone before us to prepare a place for all of us. And that's why, if you remember when our Lord Jesus Christ was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what He said? I'm going to read it to you. And it should make sense. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. What does that say to you? That Christ is praying to His Heavenly Father and saying, all of these people that you've given me, I want them to be with me when and for how long? Forever, eternally. Right? I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So what great confidence that gives us to know that Christ is preparing a place for all of us in which He will receive us there. Number five, the ascension reminds us that Christ prays for us. When Christ ascended into the heavens, remember He didn't end His work for humanity, but He continued it. I want to read to you what St. Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now He is acting on our behalf, on all behalf of all of humanity. Just as He did when He came into the world and became a ransom for us on the cross, it was we who deserved to be crucified on the cross, not Him. The same too, He appears in the presence of God for all of us. Right? He now stands before the throne of God representing all of humanity. How do we know that? Because He came down and took on humanity. And then He was lifted up to the heavens and He stands before God in the presence of God. So He's an advocate representing all of us. But in order for us to 
better benefit from this, we also have to offer him something. What do you have to offer? Where is your faith? Where is your heart? Where is your repentance? What are you offering to him? Where is the love that you have for him in which he loved us first? So there's something that we also have to do. Number six, the ascension reminds us that Christ understands our human problems and he raises us up with him. How do we know he understands humanity? Well, he became man, right? He took on complete humanity except without sin. So he knows what it feels. He knows what trials are. He knows weaknesses. He knows temptations. He knows our sorrows. He knows our burdens. He knows our agonies. He knows our frustrations. He knows all that. It's not something that's foreign to him. He robed himself in humanity. So he takes us up and he raises us up with him. He understands our weakness, but he wishes to give us what? Power to overcome those weaknesses. By what? By the strength of the Holy Spirit. He understands our temptations and he wishes to deliver us from them. By what? By the work of the Holy Spirit. He understands our sorrows and he wishes to give us comfort from the sorrows. By what? By the grace of the Holy Spirit. He understands our burden of sin that we're under, but he loves us too much just to leave us. Right? That's why he sent his Holy Spirit to rebuke us, to exhort us, to educate us, to comfort us, to everything good. Don't resist the Holy Spirit in your life. Work with him. Number seven. The ascension teaches us to gaze steadfastly to the heavens. At the ascension, that's what happened. The disciples were gazing steadfastly upwards towards the heaven. If you think about what is man, like if you study anthropology, anthropos means the creature that looks up. Creature that looks up. We are created to look up. Unfortunately, we find ourselves doing the opposite. We look down. What does it mean to look down? We get involved in the cares of the earth. That's why if you're following the, re the readings, the Coptic lectionary during these holy 50 days, we are reminded to look up in a way. How? Well, Christ says to us, I am the bread of life. Unfortunately, we're chasing after the other crumbs of the world. He says to us, I am the light of the world. Unfortunately, we're living in darkness. He said to the Samaritan woman at the well, the water I give you, you will no longer thirst. Unfortunately, we are thirsting for different waters, so to speak. We're always living in the earthly. We're face down. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is that way. But unfortunately, we pave different ways. So he is remind, we are reminded in the ascension um, that we are to look up. Instead of looking to the heavens for our hope, unfortunately, we look at lusts and materialism and all of that stuff for our salvation, which won't cut it. Christ told Nathaniel, he says, Most assuredly I say to you hereafter, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is Christ's continual presence uh, among us. Christ came into the world to open the heavens for us just like a ladder connects heaven and earth. You see angels descending and, and ascending. I'm sure you've seen that icon uh, of the ladder. It's like prayers. 
It's like prayers. Our prayers, they ascend up to heaven, so to speak, to get help, to get inspiration, to find hope. And then they come down here in the world and gives us a bit of, or a, a sample of heaven. And it keeps us afloat. It keeps us going. It's a breath of godly air in the world while we're struggling here in our humanity. I think I spoke uh, last night about... Um, that towers when they're built for churches you know how towers are erect and they, they, they do what? they go upwards they're pointing towards what? towards heaven the church is one that takes us to, to heaven and I also use the example um, and I believe correct me if I'm wrong uh, but in the Armenian tradition the cop, uh, sorry, cop the, the bishops and the priests they wear in their vestments hats that are pointy right? My understanding is that it points towards heaven. It reminds us of the heavenly. So these are really beautiful traditions that we see around us that remind us of where we belong. Okay, in closing, I'm just going to read to you a piece from St. Augustine on the Ascension. He says, Our Savior has ascended into heaven, my beloved brethren, but let us therefore not be troubled on earth. May our minds be there, and here will be peace. In the meanwhile, we shall ascend with a Christian heart that when the day of His promise will have come, we shall follow also in body. Nevertheless, brethren, we must know that with Christ ascends neither pride, nor avarice, nor impurity. None of our vices will ascend with our healer. So if we desire to ascend in company with Him, we must desist from sin and evil. We celebrate today the solemnity of the ascension of the Lord. By celebrating this feast devoutly, virtuously, faithfully, piously, we ascend with Him and we have our hearts above. For the resurrection of the Lord is our hope and His ascension is our glorification. Glory be to God forever. Amen.